Gopi Janakallava Giribharadhari Shodanandana Vrajajana Ranjana Shodanandana Vrajajana Ranjana Ramanathiravanachari Ramanathiravanachari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjavihari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunja Vihari Gopi Janavallava Girivaradhari Gopi Janavallava Girivaradhari Yashodanandana Vrajajanaranjana Yashodanandana Vrajajanaranjana Yamuna Tira Vanachari Yamuna Tira Vanachari Hari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjavihari Jaya Vishnupad Paramahangsa Parivrajaka Acharya Sotarasat Si Simadisi Bhakti Vedanta Swaman Prabhupada Ki Jaya Iskan Founder Acharya Siddha Prabhupada Ki Jaya Jayam Vishnupad Paramahansa Parivrajaka Acharya Stodhara Satsi Srimad Bhakti Sadant Saraswati Thakur Ki Jai. Nantakoti Vaishnava Rinda Ki Jai. Namacharya Siddharidas Thakur Ki Jai. Frame Sakal Sri Krishna Chaitanya Brahmanitan and the Siddhaita Gadadar Sivasati Gold Bhakti Rinda Ki Jai. Sisi Radha Krishna Gogovinata Shamakunda Radha Kundi Giri Govardhan Ki Jai. Vrindavan Dham Ki Jai. Mayapur Dham Ki Jai. Jagannasami Ki Jai. Ganga Mai Ki Jai, Jamuna Mai Ki Jai, Tulsi Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Rinda Ki Jai, all glories of the assembled devotees, Gaur Premanandi Hari Hari Bo. So, uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. This is 4.1.24. Okay. So, it's a, you get a bonus verse today. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate 
So I'll read uh, text 23, which is not written there. Tat pradurbhava sangyoga vidyotita manamuni utishtane kapadena tadarsha vibudarshavan. The sage was standing on one leg. This is Atri Muni. The sage was standing on one leg, but as soon as he saw that the three deities had appeared before him, Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva, he was so pleased to see them all together that despite great difficulty, he approached them on one leg. So just a little background for those of you who have not been attending all of the Bhagavatam classes in Los Angeles. Uh, Atrimuni uh, wasn't quite sure who God was. And he, Brahma ordered Atrimuni to create generations. Brahma was still engaged in populating the universe. So uh, Atri was drafted, was engaged in this demographic project to expand the population of the universe. So Atrimuni married Anasuya, her name means uh, free of envy, and uh, they went to perform severe austerities in the valley of the mountain known as Riksha. So this is a uh, very different kind of honeymoon. Normally, in uh, materialistic culture, the idea is that, the whole idea of the honeymoon is that, uh, well, in traditional cultures, Men and women don't have sex until they're married. And therefore, when they, the day they do get married uh, is a moment they've been waiting for for a long time. And therefore, there's this notion of a honeymoon, of going off and uh, you know, finding the closest cheap hotel you can. Here we have, here we have a very different conception of marriage. And a very different conception of sex and, and just a whole different approach to life. As I was saying the other day, the different ashrams in Vedic culture, the Varnas and ashrams are not just, it's not just a job or a, a social position, it's a whole way of life. So their honeymoon consisted in performing austerities, going to a holy place to perform austerities so that they could engage not in hedonistic, not in selfish, uh, animalistic sex, but so that they could engage in a type of holy sex life to beget a special child. Now, Atri Muni was uh, particularly ambitious in that regard. So I'll just read, just to give a little background in that. He went to a mountain valley where there was a river flowing named Nirvindhya. On the bank of the river, there are many Ashok trees, flowering trees, and other plants full of palasha flowers. There's always the sweet sound of water flowing from a waterfall. The husband and wife reached the beautiful place. So, another... Uh, we will eventually get to today's verse uh, by noon. So... It's interesting that although, although we know that the material world is not meant for our sense gratification, we should not bring to nature an enjoying spirit, it is still an undeniable fact that in Vedic culture, elevated people really appreciated nature. And so, for example, uh, Atrimuni and his wife Anasuya, they in a sense, could have gone anywhere, they chose to go to a very beautiful place. They chose, they went to a very beautiful place. They could have gone to a swamp. There are swamps in India. Or a desert, or wherever. But they chose to go to this very beautiful place. And this is kind of like uh, the typical beautiful place where there's, you'll find many similar descriptions in the Bhagavatam and Mahabharata. There's a beautiful little gurgling river it's the sweet sound of water flowing from a waterfall and a stream. It's a beautiful mountain valley full of flowers. Uh, there are no, obviously no utility wires around and not a bunch of 
people driving around in cars. And uh, it's very beautiful. It's a very beautiful place. I mean, to this day, we appreciate waterfalls and beautiful flowering mountain valleys and so on. So people, th this natural beauty is not meant for sense gratification, but it does tend to create a sublime state of consciousness. And that's where they chose to go. There the great sage concentrated his mind by the yogic breathing exercises, thereby controlling all attachment. He remains standing on one leg only. As they say, don't try this at home. You may hurt yourself. But people would perform these austerities. Standing on one leg. This is obviously extremely uncomfortable. Uh, and, uh, but they would do it to completely reject the demands of the body, to totally dominate, to control the body. It's, if, if you think of it, for example, in wartime, when people, men, get very passionate and violent and uh, sometimes when they, for example, when they, when they capture an enemy, they, they scream at the person, get down. And there are various techniques for humiliating prisoners. And uh, police also sometimes use these techniques to make very clear to the unfortunate individual who's in control and to sort of uh, strip that person, re remove from that person their dignity and their, or in any possible sense the person could have of being in control. So these are sort of practical, sometimes uh, severe techniques that are used. What's interesting here is that in the Bhagavatam, there's all this language about conquering the senses, conquering the mind. And this is, of course, the same word that's used in military operations. And so we, we have these techniques which are still practiced in India today and you can see in Kumbh Mela a, uh, quite a, uh, an assortment of creative techniques to humiliate the body. Not just humiliate, but to subdue the body, to conquer it, to just make it very clear to the senses and the body that you're not in charge uh, and to really put the body down, to totally dominate it, conquer it. So here, standing on one leg, intentionally doing something which is extremely uncomfortable. Which is extremely uncomfortable. And uh, in that position, of course, you, there's not much you can do in terms of sense gratification. You can't dance very well on one foot. And you can't really do anything. It's just in a very uncomfortable, kind of materially miserable situation to be in. And yet that's what Atri Muni did. And, that, and, and also he ate his uh, prasadam consisted, and I check out this menu, air. So try this for breakfast or lunch for a few days. And so standing on one leg, eating only air, he did this for 100 years. And while he was doing this, he, was, he wasn't thinking, ouch. As he was doing this, he was thinking... May the Lord of the universe, of whom I have taken shelter, kindly be pleased to offer me a son exactly like him. Now, in one sense, Atri Muni is quite a modern character. Because there are a lot of people nowadays in the world, certainly in this country, who have a, some vague, generic idea of loving the Lord of the universe or wanting to somehow remember God or be right with God or walk with God or, you know. And sometimes it gets even more vague. Sometimes they don't even get up to the point of Lord of the universe. It's just the universe. The universe was kind to me. You hear that kind of language nowadays, which is, I find always fascinating because I always want to ask people like that, do you mean the asteroids or, or the sun or do you mean the buildings on the earth or... The, the vapor clouds out in space. I mean, which part of the universe is communicating with you? Or is it that if you get enough asteroids and stars and mountains and buildings and vapor clouds and put them all together, somehow it all becomes conscious in a way that somehow is not known by the individual parts of that thing and who that consciousness is. It, it's, it's actually, it's, um, it sounds kind of poetic and deep, it's actually kind of idiotic just between us. I mean, we may say it in a somewhat, somewhat nicer way when we're out in public, but just between us, it's, it's pretty stupid. 
But nonetheless, uh, stupidity is no obstacle for most people. And so they talk that way. So anyway, or they, uh, some people just talk in general about the Lord of the universe. And Atri Muni is a modern figure because most people have no idea who the Lord of the universe is and aren't terribly interested either, as you can find out very easily by going out in Sankirtan and asking people if they're interested. So... For most people, this is good enough. There's a Lord of the, there's Lord of the Universe. It gives you a warm feeling inside. It sounds like it's true. It's comforting. It's inspiring. And, and there's no need to become more serious than that about God. Because it may begin to interfere with your lifestyle. Now, Atri Muni, of course, was not in that category. Atri Muni did want to know something about God. And he wanted to have a son like God, which is going to be a problem because Krishna is sui generis. He's sort of one of a kind. Anyway, so that was Atri Muni's meditation. And then while he was engaged in these severe austerities, a blazing fire came out of his head. Again, don't try this at home. A blazing fire came out of his head by virtue of his breathing exercise. And that fire was seen by the three principal deities of the three worlds. Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva saw that down there on whatever planet Atri Muni was, wherever he was located at the time. That's another, just, just a little footnote. It's kind of interesting because we read in the Bhagavatam all these stories of pastimes that take place on many different planets, but somehow they're all on Earth in India. So if you travel around India, you'll find the place where everything happened, including things that happened in other planets, which makes you wonder. Prabhupada actually noted this. He was once asked whether something had really happened in one place regarding Nursingadeva, and he said, no, not really. But anyway, in India, you'll find the place that everything happened, even on other planets. And this doesn't bother most pilgrims. So, then, in text 22, at that time, the three deities approached the hermitage the ashram of Atri Muni, accompanied by the denizens of the heavenly planets, such as the celestial beauties, the Gandharvas, the Siddhas, the Vidyadras, the Nagas. So the, the whole cosmic village came out for this. It's interesting. There's a, just like there's a, the, the term the global village. Well, in the Bhagavatam, it gets even better. In the Bhagavatam, there's actually a, a real functioning cosmic village where people really know each other. There are great sages and uh, just... This is a very typical list. The Apsaras, the Munis, the Gandharvas, Siddhas, Bidyadaras, which means the knowledge holders. Sometimes the Kimpurushas. It's funny because the Kimpurushas, the word Kimpurusha in Sanskrit means, is that a human? It's a question, actually. Kim is a question, like Spanish K. Uh, because they sort of resemble human beings, but they're different, so they're called, is that a human? And also the... Another group is the Kinnaras. You may, you may, they're in the Bhagavatam all over the place. The Kinnaras. King Nara means, is that a man? Then that became their name. So anyway, the cosmic village came out and accompanied. So, so it's like, it's just like, imagine if you're living in a little village and someone's standing there in the village on one leg and suddenly fire starts coming out of his head. You know, the word gets around, the whole village runs over to see what it is. So this is what, so the cosmic village is coming over to see what's going on with this sage who's got this blazing fire coming out of his head. And that brings us to today's verse. The sage was standing on one leg, but as soon as he saw that the three deities had appeared before him, he was so pleased to see them all together that despite great difficulties, he approached them on one leg. He, he hopped over on one leg. So... Anyway... I can't help suspecting that although we are accustomed to take everything here in a very sort of a grave way, that there's some humor in the Bhagavatam. In fact, one time I was giving a Bhagavatam class in Los Angeles uh, when Prabhupada was here, and the devotees were laughing at a few things. After the class, I went up to Prabhupada's room, and I guess he heard the laughter up in his quarters. And as soon as I walked in, he said, this is very nice, keep the devotees jolly. So I, I think the Bhagavatam also keeps us jolly because, I mean, like, names like, is that a man? 
And here the sage, this holy sage, hopping over on one leg very ecstatically. It's um, anyway, it's interesting. So now we'll. Oops. Now we're going to chant this verse. So we'll do this responsibly. Maybe we'll just do it a few times since we've already uh, used up some of our allotted time here. So please repeat. Pranamya Dandavat Bhumav Upataste Arhananjali Vrisha Hangsa Suparna Stan Swaik Swais, Chinnais, Cha, Chinnitan, Pranamya Dandavat Bhumav, Upatasteer Hananjali, Vrishahangsa Suparnasthan, Saik Saik Chinnais, Cha, Chinnitan, Pranamya Dandavat Bhumav, Pranamya Dandavat Bhumav Upatasteer Hananjali Vrishahangsa Suparnasthan Vrishahangsa Suparnasthan Saik Saik Chinnaischa Chinnitan Saik Saik Chinnaischa Chinnitan So, perhaps read the translation. I guess we won't. Pranamjali Vrishahangsa Suparnasthan So, thereafter he began to offer prayers to the three deities who were seated on different carriers, a bull, a swan, and Garuda, and who held in their hands a drum, kusha grass, and discus, the sage offered them his respects by falling down like a stick. So, uh, Prabhupada's purport. Danda means a long rod and vat means like. Before a superior, one has to fall down on the ground just like a stick. And this sort of offering of respect is called danda vat. Of course, nowadays also the the custom at times not to do it just to say it dandavats actually it's dandavat like vat is the matter it's actually dandavat but in ISKCON now the official pronunciation is dandavat that's alright and it's also it can be offered orally dandavats before a superior so Atri Rishi offered his respect to the three deities in that way. They were identified by their different carriers and different symbolic representations. In that connection, it is stated here that Lord Vishnu was seated on Garuda, a big aquiline bird. Aquiline means eagle, as in Spanish, aguila. And was carrying in his hand a disc. Brahma was seated on a swan and had in his hand kusha grass. Lord Shiva was sitting on a bull and carrying in his hand a small drum called Damaru. Atri Rishi recognized them by their symbolic representations and different carriers, and thus he offered them prayers and respects. That's Prabhupada's purport. So, he now is no longer standing on one leg because he's offering, he's fallen like a stick on the ground. He hopped over on one leg and then fell like a stick on the ground. Uh, and he's at Upataste, attending on them. Arhananjali, his hands are folded in respect. And this is interesting. Vrisha uh, Hangsa Suparna. Vrisha is bull, Hangsa Swan, Suparna, Garuda, an eagle. Literally means fine feathered. Parna, Suparna literally means fine feathered. So, this is definitely not, these are not your normal industrial vehicles. What I meant to say. It's very interesting how uh, you have this non-industrial technology. We have real things. Garuda is a great soul, of course. And uh, 
and the bull which carries Lord Shiva and the swan that carries Brahma, we may presume, are elevated souls. Garuda being, of course, the most exalted. So, from a cultural perspective, if we read stories like this, in our age, in the age that we live in, which is sort of a jaded, cynical, in many ways spiritually blind age, and I think this is not at all hyperbole, this is not at all an exaggeration, uh, stories like this would be considered somewhat childlike. In other words, in our culture, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying, if you just study from an outside perspective, within modern culture, within modern culture, you find stories like this. Of course, you find it in ancient stories. You'll find many things like this. People, uh, divine figures riding on swans and bulls and, or eagles. You'll find stories like this in ancient stories, which, are, which modern culture calls mythology. And you'll still find it in cartoons and in general in children's stories. So I'm making this point. The point I'm making is not that these are childish stories. That's not my point at all. I'm rather saying if you take stories like this and you locate them, you find out where they are located in modern culture, it tells you something about modern culture. It tells you something that the modern culture is, as has been noted, a very disenchanted culture. It's a very disenchanted culture. Uh, in the sense that uh, the world really is enchanted. For one thing, Krishna is everywhere. Krishna is everywhere. There is the divine, there's the presence of Krishna in every atom, in every heart. There are demigods. There are, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this universe. So that uh, there is much more than meets the eye, especially much more than meets the eye of an ignorant person. So, uh, I mean, consider, for example, the children, when they draw pictures, very typically will put a face on everything. Children live in an enchanted world so that there's a smiling face on the sun. There's probably a smiling face on a house, isn't it? So if you think of it, how the world looks to young children, they live in a very enchanted, mystical world in which everything is personal and everything is alive. And so if we study the history, intellectual and cultural history of the modern world, we see the gradual disenchantment of the world where people more and more stupidly come to think that the gross physical world that can be perceived by the most ignorant person. It's definitely the base of the pyramid of cognition in the sense that any fool literally can see the physical world. And so the uh, shrinking of reality in people's minds into the grossest, basest, the most uh, lowest aspect of reality and thinking that is all of reality and losing touch with the higher levels of reality and ultimately losing enchant with, touch with God and demigods, the disenchanting of the world and uh, a civilization which is cynical and uh, lusty and greedy and uh, insanely vain, full of vanity, the, the, the most ignorant kind of vanity where people who are very unattractive think they are very attractive. People who are very trivial think they are very important. People who are very weak think they're very strong. So in the most, it's the most ignorant type of vanity, which is almost entirely disconnected from any justification. And that's the world we live in. So in this very cynical, ignorant world, Beautiful stories like this are considered to be childish. In a sense, they are, because children are perhaps the last ones left as a group, as a large group in our culture, who have not been ruined. 
although they are being ruined at increasingly young ages. But still, at least those children who are fortunate not to be ruined very early are perhaps the last major group in society that still get it, that still understand that reality is intensely personal, that the world is in fact enchanted. Whereas, as people, because at a very early age, people become victims of lust and greed, and uh, we seem to be producing increasingly uh, dull generations. And so, so at, at, at a relatively early age, when someone becomes overwhelmed by lust and greed and so on, they lose touch with higher reality, which cannot perceive, be perceived in those nasty states of consciousness. So the more one is lusty, the more one is greedy, the more one is stupidly proud with no justification, the more one loses one's power to understand the higher stages of reality. So that the sublime and the enchanted appear to be the immature and the illusory. So that's what's going on. And uh, I noted that because of this verse and how it would strike. So I think it's good to, when we read these verses in the Bhagavatam, for example, we can just take for granted, sure, what else is new? Vishnu came on Garuda, Brahma came on his bull, and, uh, on his swan, and Shiva came on his bull. So, but what's the interesting part of the story? But I think if we do a little comparative cultural analysis and really try to think of how this looks to people in general, for one thing, it may explain a bit of why uh, people aren't beating the doors down of our temples uh, to join this movement. I, and and I, I think the more, the more we can intelligently understand how this looks to the fallen souls, and the more we can begin to intelligently explain it to them, intelligently explain these things to people, I think the more we can attract intelligent people to this movement. So, if you've been in the movement for a while, you've read stories like this a million times and you don't even see it. It's just like, okay, so they came on their carriers. Now, what else happened? Anyway, so, the, also, it's an interesting hermeneutical point is how the Acharyas tend to interpret for our benefit, uh, words which otherwise are somewhat general. For example, the word chinna, C-I-H-N. I wonder, like, like thousands of years ago in India, if they pronounced the H like a guttural sound. Anyway, that's a linguistic thought. But anyway, the word chinna, with the H in it, chinna, means a visible mark, a sign. Like you shall know them by their signs. So uh, here, the Bhagavatam just says that uh, he honored them, each one marked by his own marks. That's literally what it says. The word chinnais chinnita means marked by their marks. So each, so the word chinna, uh, the acharyas, I'm sure Prabhupada is following the previous commentators, where he puts in his translation drum, kusha, grass, and discus, which is not technically in the Sanskrit. The Sanskrit simply says, Marks. They were marked by their marks or they were known by their signs and so on. And so the Acharyas say, well, these are their, it could have been this because these are their typical, I mean, they have other typical things also. Vishnu is not only known by his disc or discus, he's also known by other things he carries. He's known by his, and so on. But what's interesting is that, uh, It says here they were marked by their different marks or they were known by their different signs, which means that which it, it sounds like Atri is really not very clear about this because he's heard about these three deities and so he knows them. But you wonder if, if they didn't have, if Shiva didn't have his drum and Brahma didn't have his kusha grass and uh, Vishnu didn't have his disc, whether he would have recognized them. Did he even know them well enough? Would he have recognized them without these things? 
So I'll just read one more verse here. Kripabalokina Hasad Badaneno Palambitan Tadrochi Shapatiate Nimilya Munirakshini. Atri Muni was greatly pleased to see that these three devas were gracious towards him. His eyes were dazzled by the effulgence of their bodies, and therefore he closed his eyes for the time being. Prabhupada says, since the deities were smiling, he could not he could under he could understand. They were pleased with him. Their glaring bodily effulgence was intolerable to his eyes, so he closed them for the time being. So anyway, I won't, I'll stop here, but his heart was attracted to the deities, prayed with folded hands, and he's going to say to them, O Lord Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, you have divided yourself into three bodies by accepting the three modes of material nature, as you do in every millennium for the creation, maintenance, and dissolution of the cosmic manifestation. I offer my respectful obeisances unto all of you and beg to inquire whom of you three I have called by my prayer. In other words, will the real God please stand up? So, this is interesting. This is in, in its own way, and I'll just wrap up here, a very modern story. Because I would say most people nowadays... Most people that actually believe in God in some way or other uh, are in this position. They aren't really sure who God is. And many of them object to the notion that you can know who God is. Many of them say they want to keep it vague in general. Like if you say God is Krishna, they, 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 they object to it. Not simply because they don't like Krishna. There's something that, you know, they don't like flute music or... Or they just don't like the person Krishna. But often they object because they object to the very notion, the very principle of being specific about God. It's not that they're objecting to the person Krishna. They're objecting to the general idea that God is in any way specific. Because there's the idea that God has to include everything. As Arjun says to Krishna... In the Bhagavad Gita, sarvam samapnoshi sarvam. You encompass everything, therefore you are everything. Arjuna says this in chapter 11 of the Gita. You encompass everything. Sarvam samapnoshi tato. Therefore, asi sarvam. You are everything. So there's this common belief that God encompasses everything. God includes everything. God is everything. And it's always a vague notion exactly how God is everything. For example, is God my little knit hat? Well, it's industrially knit. It's not, no, it's not that some pious person knit it. But take my hat. I mean, is, is my hat God? If God is everything, did my hat create the universe? Did it create other hats? Did it... So, or the universe was kind to me. So my hat is part of the universe. Was, was my hat kind to me? Is my hat conscious? Is it getting dizzy right now? So this is very, it's kind of poetic, it's language that sounds poetic, that sounds deep, that sounds mystical, and means very little. It, it means very little, unless you really get more specific about it. So many people object to God being specific because they think if God is blue, he's not other colors. If God is a boy, he's not a girl. If God is a cowherd boy, he's not a... I don't know, he's not a basketball player. So, the idea is that as soon as you get specific, you leave everything else out. And since nothing is left out in God, you should not be specific. So, this is a somewhat crude philosophical position because it's, it assumes the material laws of nature define God. In other words, in the material world, my hat is not a thermometer and uh, this microphone is not a, an airplane, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not you, and you're not me. So, in the material world, as soon as you say, this is this, it's not that. And that's the way the material world works. And people bring the same material understanding to God and say, if God's a cowherd boy, then he's not everything else. If God is blue, he's not other colors. If God has a form, then he's not all the other forms. Or he's not formless. So, Krishna includes everything, but he's still specific. That's the idea. That Krishna spiritually is specific. God is a specific person, who of course expands into millions of forms. 
and yet that specific God can still include everything, this is, a, this is an ontological fact. It's a fact about the nature of being which escapes people who try to understand God through material reasoning, which is the reason that mental speculation is ultimately a big flop. It ultimately doesn't work because you bring to it what you know and what you know is mostly material and it just doesn't compute. So, anyway, uh, here we have this sort of modern figure, Atrimuni, believing in God, worshipping God, and having no clear idea of who God is. So this will get cleared up. Any questions on these points? Yes. Would you consider a culture such as the Roman culture that had different deities that did different things, would you consider this culture immature or would you consider it immature only because of the things the deities did? Okay. Roman culture. The point I was making is that from the point of view of, let's say, modern quote-unquote educated people or rational or scientific people, the Roman religion, which was somewhat diverse, but Roman religion would be considered to, as I, I suppose a somewhat immature conception of life. Pe people no longer believe in Jupiter, which by the way is from Sanskrit directly. In Sanskrit, the word dew means heaven, and Peter, you know, means father. So, dew Peter means the father of heaven from Sanskrit. Anyway, so we would consider Roman religion, I think, somewhat immature because, at least in terms of folk religion, popular religion, as you find in India, for that matter, among, quote-unquote, the folk, the people in the villages, uh, it tends to be polytheistic. And I think uh, you could give good reasons, philosophical reasons, and even cultural reasons, to show that polytheism is less developed than monotheism. Monotheism is just a more mature understanding of life than polytheism. And so... Uh, Really, talking about Roman religion, it's probably easier to speak about Mediterranean religion because if you look at the re religion around the Mediterranean world in Italy and Greece and uh, that whole area, North Africa, which tended to be very similar, it tended to be polytheistic. And uh, the Romans, for example, and yet I think with the, I have to say, I think, I think with the onset of Christianity, which was monotheistic, something was gained and something was lost. Because Christianity largely supplanted, largely replaced uh, the previous Mediterranean religions, which were polytheistic. And I think what was gained is monotheism. What was lost was uh, common sense, in a sense, that, uh, and, and civilization. Because a culture, a religious culture around the Mediterranean, which tended to be largely tolerant and open-minded, and to believe that there was divine presence in many different forms, was replaced by a violent fanaticism. And so, uh, so I think that's, that was the bad news. I mean, the good news is that people started to believe in one God, I and mean, that didn't last long because it, it developed into a trinity. So, but the bad news was that a type of liberal eclectic I mean, I mean, the Mediterranean, in one sense, was very New Age, like sort of like this New Age culture. The Romans, for example, the Roman emperor traditionally would offer, would send an offering of money to pay for a puja, just like we have these sort of like, you know, you can buy a puja in our Hare Krishna temples in India is common. So the Roman emperor would actually sponsor a puja all around the empire, including in Jerusalem, in the temple. Because the idea was you can't get too much mercy. That if somehow there's divine power in all these different forms and gods, then why not get as much as you can? Get as many blessings as you can, which is very much, in a sense, the notion in India. So if you look at the religion which was replaced, so-called paganism, is very similar to Hinduism. It's very similar to Hinduism. 
in, uh, in the sense that it was polytheistic. And I say Hinduism, I, I'm, I, I'm saying that consciously. Although, as we know, Vedic religion is not polytheistic. The Vedic culture is ultimately monotheistic. But Hinduism does tend to be polytheistic, actually. Even when there's some notion of an ultimate one, an ultimate impersonal one, but on the ground, so to speak, in Hindustan, on the ground, among the people, people's real concern is worshipping this, worshipping that, getting blessings, and you'll see very densely populated altars <laughs> in Hindu culture. So, so I would say it's, uh, it, it tended to be mature in the sense that it was somewhat eclectic and liberal and tolerant, and it tended to be immature in the sense that it, was, it tended to be polytheistic. It, it would be immature from the point of view of a cynical modern person because it was an enchanted world. Is that clear? Yes, ma'am. That what? Atri? Atri Muni, was he the son of Lord Brahma? Uh, I'm a little rusty on that one. Did anyone here know that? I, I mean, based on that, I wanted to ask if, if that is so, so it seems like that Lord Brahma created more like quality than quantity with sons, if they don't even know who's the supreme personality of God is. And if he is his son, if Lord Brahma, his father comes personally in front of him, how come he doesn't recognize his father or say, hey, dad, uh, you know, come and, you know, I have a desire, please give me that song. It was not, I think, a typical father-knows-best family. In other words, Brahma created these mental sons, but they didn't just sort of grow up in, you know, you know in some nice little house somewhere on Maple Avenue. It was uh, Brahma created these mental sons, and I don't think he necessarily personally raised them. It was more of a cosmic creation as opposed to typical home life. So I don't know if he had that hey dad kind of relationship with Brahma. And also, you know, we take it for granted that duh, Krishna is God. That's our position, but it's not so obvious. That's why Prabhupada put it, you know, in every page of every book. So we've heard it thousands and thousands of times. But for people that are not in touch with a pure devotee, it's the least obvious thing in the world. In fact, before we met Prabhupada, we were not real bright either. Although we probably thought we were. Yes. Yes, mental son. Yes. I like this talk Thank show format. Thank you for a very wonderful enlightening <laughs> class. Uh, it's not surprising that, that Achimuni is not so sure because earlier on in the Bhagavatam, Nard Muni set the example. He approached Lord Rama and asked him, remember that David David Jagadda too, Bhuta Bhavana Purvaja, is asking him, please, I, I see you're worshipping someone, but I thought you were the Supreme, so please make it clear who is Supreme. So even Nard Muni set the example by you know, saying that I'm your son, yes. but I, I'm not sure what's happening. And also, when all these great cosmic events are taking place, among powerful people, it's not obvious who's strongest. For example, uh, take something, typical example from Vedic cu culture, college football. Uh, let, well, I'll give a more international example. Let's say like every four years they have a, a World Cup soccer championship. Since we have an international group here, I'll give an international example. Take the World Soccer Championship. Now, there are many good teams. If there's some great team like Brazil or Germany or whatever playing against, let's say, I don't know, the Hamilton High School soccer team from Los Angeles, it's obvious who's going to win. But you have these great teams. It's not obvious who's, who the best is. So when you get people who are all very powerful, it's not clear who's going to win. We think it's obvious that Krishna is God because that's all we, we've heard it thousands and thousands of times. We've experienced it. And frankly, we don't take, we have no real experience of Brahman Shiva. Very little experience. If you actually know Brahman Shiva as real personalities, if you see someone creating a universe, that's impressive. It's impressive to see someone create a universe. If you know that Shiva is a god who has the power to destroy the entire universe, that's also impressive. 
So when you're dealing with people on that level and you actually see their power, it's not obvious who number one is. And that was exactly the situation when, when, when Krishna came also. People, for example, the Yadu dynasty knew he was the Lord of the universe, but they weren't sure whether that was an eternal position. Maybe it's a temporary position. Manus are temporary. Demigods are temporary. They knew that. And therefore, for example, Kangsa's advisors told him, seriously, they, they weren't like, they weren't just joking or, or just being insane. They said, Vishnu's in the heart of all creatures, but he can't come out. Or he's afraid to come out. I mean, take Brahma for a... So a lot of times we, 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 we can't figure out how can people be so dumb, but we're being kind of dumb. For example, uh, take Brahma. Unlike Indra, Brahma doesn't get involved in universal fights. Indra is always out there throwing his thunderbolt. I mean, Indra is like at the drop of a hat, you know, he's out there fighting. But you never see Brahma fighting. So there are gods, very important gods, that don't fight. That don't leave their positions. That they're above it all. So it's not always obvious that Vishnu is above it all. That he's not. You may think, well, Vishnu's, maybe it's a temporary position. Brahma's a temporary position. Maybe Vishnu is also. Brahma doesn't fight. Maybe Vishnu doesn't fight. So I think that uh, stories that we tend, some things that we tend to see as silly, it's only because we're, we don't have a very clear, under, deep understanding of what it really felt like to be in the universe at that time in a particular position. So, stop here. Yes, last question. You, in the white sweatshirt. Yes, sir. Oh, your grace. Uh, your uh, grace. When, when speaking about Krishna consciousness to others, I many times get to this point of uh, the response being, oh, that's just mythology, and it gets dismissed as soon as they start hearing about things that kind of blow them away, you know. I think we need to present it philosophically. If we are trying to tell people something which we know will strike them as highly mythological, I think we need to not just tell stories, but actually explain things. Explain why it's intellectually respectable to believe all this. That's why we have to be an educational institution. Prabhupada himself was an educated man, even from the material point of view. So, we'll stop here. Thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Oh, by the way, we're having little darshans in the evening over where I live in. I'll be here uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday evening, so you're all welcome. Hare Krishna.